Um, you, you describe obviously at length um, Chaucer's travels and certainly the time that he spent in Navarre. Um, and here he encounters a variety of different types of people that perhaps you don't have in England. Certainly there are no Jews in England expelled in 12, 1290. Muslims have not reached England. Uh, um, and so how does this influence his, his writings, his future writings, that experience? Yeah, so I'm really interested in his trip to Navarre. So Chaucer went to Navarre in 1366 on some kind of mission um, for the king. We don't know very much about it. We have a uh, quite a, a simple record in which he's given a safe conduct in by the king of Navarre, Charles, known as Charles the Bad. Uh, so he's given this safe conduct in Olite, Navarre in 1366. And when I was researching my biography of Chaucer, Chaucer European Life, um, I realised no one had really done much work at all on what Chaucer might have experienced in his time in Navarre. So I looked at lots and lots of documents that had been issued by the Chancellery of Navarre in that same week that Chaucer was there and tried to find out about what Navarre's life was like at that time. And I think that what's really fascinating is that at this point, Chaucer encountered a multicultural society. So as you say, he was from England, where from where the Jews had been expelled in 1290. You can still see that he, he would still have been aware of the kind of the traces of Judaism in areas such as Old Jewry, in the anti-Semitic stories that were still very widespread at this time. And one of his characters tells a very anti-Semitic story, the Prioress's Tale. When Chaucer went to Navarre, he met actual Jews and Muslims and experienced a society in which people of different religions and cultures were working together to make society work. And the experience of Jews in Navarre at this time is, is really fascinating. Um, I, knew, I know that it's important to be careful about not romanticizing their experience. I mean, there were lots of, of aspects of their life and different moments of um, Jewish life in, in Navarre where things were very difficult for them, where they did experience violence um, and all kinds of, of injustice. However, at the time that Chaucer went, compared to the way that Jews were treated in some other parts of the Iberian Peninsula, such as Aragon, for example, at this time, or compared to the way that they were treated, had been treated in many European societies, it was a lot better. So when Chaucer went there, Jews, for instance, were able to own land, they could farm, they could do a whole variety of different jobs. So the king's physician was a Jew, so was his favorite juggler. Um, when Jews went to court, their oaths had full weight, which was not always the case in other medieval European societies. And they were allowed to take with them a Jewish witness and assistant at court to court. When I went to Elite, I noticed that next to the palace where Chaucer received his safe conduct was the Rua de la Juderia. The street of the Jews was right next to the palace. I have symbol of how close they were to court life, how important they were. I mean, Lite is a very small place. The, the, the street of the Jews was right there at the heart of royal life, of institutional life. I also found out that 
when Chaucer was there, so he was there at a time when Aragon invaded. And at pretty much exactly the same time as his safe conduct was issued, the king also issued a directive telling the Jews of Pamplona to take inside the city, to take Jews from the countryside inside the city walls to keep them safe because he knew that the Aragonese soldiers were likely to target them. At this time, in another town in Navarre, Tudela, um, when pronouncements were made, official pronouncements, they were made in city squares and markets on Thursdays. Um, and then they were made in, in mosques, in synagogues, in churches on the appropriate day. I thought that was a fascinating detail that actually those in authority were thinking, OK, we can't access everyone by the same route. We need to make announcements in all these different places of worship in different on different days, which sounds kind of obvious. But actually, lots of societies don't think like that. They don't think we need different routes to access people of different cultural values. They're going to be gathering on different days, for example. So although, as I say, there were still, I think, appalling aspects of, of, of injustice, the Christians were still you know, in, very much in charge in this society. Nonetheless, at this particular moment, these different groups of people were managing to live together. And this is also, of course, an, an important reminder of the fact that Jewish populations and Muslim populations have long, long been a fundamental part of European life. Again, I think there are, there are some people today that want to paint a picture of a historically white Christian Europe. And that is, of course, wrong, completely wrong. Um, and Chaucer, Chaucer knew that and he, he experienced that. Your question was about how his experiences there influenced his writings. I don't know how his specific experiences there influenced his writings. Um, I will talk a bit about, about the way that his writings were influenced by by Jewish writings and by ideas about Jews. I don't know how the actual experiences he had meeting Jewish people, um, what he saw of Jewish culture precisely in Navarre. It's hard to make, well, it's impossible to make certain direct links with his writing. But I do think in thinking about him as a person, it certainly matters the fact that he did experience this kind of multicultural society and he saw that it was possible for these very different groups of people to live together. In thinking about his his writings, um, so we know that he was aware of a variety of Jewish writings. Um, one of the most important was um, were scientific writings. So one of the things that Chaucer wrote um, was called a treatise on the astrolabe. So an astrolabe was a scientific instrument that you could use to you could you, you could use to tell the time. You could look. You could use the stars. And his main source for for writing this text, which is mainly a translation, was his source was a Latin translation of an Arabic text. Um, written by someone that he knew as Mesahala, um, more commonly known as, and I may be pronouncing this wrong, but as Mashala Ibn Athari, who was an 8th century Jewish writer, a Persian Jewish writer. And Chaucer knew that this text had come, you know, was written by this person in Arabic, though he could not himself read Arabic. He was reading it in a Latin translation. But that's, I think, a, a good example of the fact that 
Chaucer was fully aware of a world of scholarship, of important learning beyond Europe, European languages. So although his own main influences, his own main influences were certainly not in English, his main influences were in Latin, French, and then very dramatically Italian. But he also knew that underpinning quite a lot of his learning were texts that had been written in other languages. He talks about texts written in Hebrew and Arabic at the beginning of this treatise. And he knew about those scholars and that there was that kind of world of that more, more global world of learning of all kinds of other languages underpinning the kinds of things that he wrote. So that's one way in which Jewish writings themselves were influential on Chaucer. We also unfortunately see see anti-Semitic writings that you know people are more, I think, much more aware of the influence of anti-Semitic writings on Chaucer than they are aware of the influence of Jewish scholarship on Chaucer. But it is important to say a bit about that anti-Semitism, which was of course um such a a major part of of English culture for for a very long time. Is is he is he so is he giving is, is he giving narrative? To, to the anti-Semitic point of view or that was so ingrained? Is he simply giving narrative and this is not really an expression of his views or was it so ingrained that you can't really separate the narrative from his own views? People would give you different answers to that and there isn't a there isn't a definitive answer to that, though, of course, I have an opinion and as do, do many people. So, as you say, it is a narrator who gives these anti-Semitic views. So the Canterbury Tales, as I've already said, is a tale collection told by a variety of different people. They are all unreliable. You know, none of them are authoritative tellers. They are and they are satirized in various ways. So a figure called the Prioress so uh, an important nun of a religious figure who is heavily satirized in the description of her you know she's described as being much more interested in love than in in religion she you know she has a brooch that says on it love conquers all amor winket omnia she's obsessed with her pet animals but then brutal about human beings so she's a she's a satirized figure she tells a monstrously anti-semitic tale so her story is it, it's one of the, the class one of the the blood libels that are, that were told very frequently in medieval Europe and in in later Europe European um, anti-Semitism. So a story about a group of Jews who murder a Christian child. So it's a completely abhorrent story, and some people would say that anti-Semitism was so was so common at this time that it's almost impossible to believe that an Englishman at this time would not have had those views, that they, they were almost universal. Um, I mean, I don't think that's that's true. I, I think, you know, we see, you know, for instance, through Chaucer's travels that he he certainly did experience many people who were working alongside and with Jews and who who did not think of them simply as this, this monstrous stereotype. Um, and he obviously, as I've also just been saying, knew that Jewish scholars were learned and intelligent and important to him. What we, what we see in the prioress's tale is, is one person's 
point of view. Um, there are some interesting aspects about this, which might back up the idea that Chaucer does not want us to think about this as his point of view. I mean, first of all, he doesn't want us to think of any of these tales as his point of view. And he goes out of his way to separate the narrators from himself. In the Prioress's prologue and tale, he inserts a couple of moments where he breaks away from the story to say, quod she, she said. He almost never does that in the Canterbury Tales. So he's he quite deliberately reminding us that this is someone speaking at this time. He also, and, and I think this is, well, I think there's a couple of other just interesting things to say. There's lots of versions of this story at this time. The Prioress's version is more extreme in its brutality than other versions. So, for instance, I mean, they're all horrific, but in other versions at the end, most commonly the, the Jewish perpetrators of the, the murder, most commonly they convert at the end or the person who actually committed the murder is executed. In the Prioress's version, Everyone who knew about the crime is executed and in a in a brutal way, they are pulled apart by horses. And within this this story, you also have the so the, the person. So some of the people in authority say um, they, they, they give an eye for an eye justification for this, saying evil shall have that evil have deserved. Though, of course, what they're actually doing is much more than an eye for an eye kind of justice in that they are killing many many people in return for one but then quite shortly after that the prioress begs for mercy for herself and keeps repeating the word mercy and talking about how she wants mercy she wants god to be merciful to her she prays for mercy and i think that this is this is very stark a very stark contrast and it is satirical you know i think we can read this as someone who is absolutely blinkered and narrow who is has a bloodlust you know, and, and again there's the sense that she loves her little animals she cries when she sees mice in a trap but she has this bloodlust about human beings and she applies one attitude to them this you know you will all be killed in response to one crime while for herself begging for mercy and not seeing the the, the tension between those perspectives so I mean, I have little doubt that we are supposed to see her as a problematic figure who is very limited in her understanding of religion. Having said that, that does not then tell us that Chaucer is himself not anti-Semitic. I don't think it tells us either way. I, I think we actually ultimately can't know. I don't think the tale gives us evidence because he's, you know, you know when we read a, when we read Lolita we don't think Nabokov must have been a paedophile because he writes a, a book about a, a paedophile you know narrators I mean the point of literature is you have a separation between the author and the narrator and we don't take the points of view of narrators or characters as representing the points of view of authors you know it's a real problem if we if we do that um, but I think also there's I mean I feel personally that it's it's very important not to try to um explain everything away you know people often talk about the fact that biographers fall in love with their subjects and you know I, I don't think I did that exactly but you often want to exculpate them to see because you get so involved in in everything you know about them that you want to see that the best aspects of them and you know I think we have to be really really careful about that um, anti-semitism certainly was very common in England at this time he may have had 
have had you know, monstrous views about Jews, but I don't think the existence of the prior tale tells us one way or another. How, and, and just in, perhaps in closing, um, how do you take the enormous passion that you have for medieval literature and for Chaucer specifically and give that over to a young generation that, you know, looks, you know, when, when I started reading the book and I'm saying, this isn't English, and I'm sure my kids would say that. This is not, this is not English. This is some other language. How do you take, you know, what, what you have researched and, and, and the passion that obviously you have and try to convey it over, you know, to the young generation? Why is Chaucer I mean, I think that usually when people persist a little bit with Middle English, they soon find it relatively easy. You know, so once they if they they start reading something really fun, like the Miller's Tale or something, um, they start off finding it, finding it hard and then they slip into it quite easily. But also, of course, you know, if it's if it is proving hard you can read a translation you know that's that's okay that's not banned obviously I wouldn't let my students do it but um, but they but but when you're reading for fun you access it in in whatever way you you want to and you so many people so many later authors have been so profoundly influenced by Chaucer it is quite hard to understand your literary all kinds of texts without knowing about Chaucer but I think that I mean, I, I usually find that students do love Chaucer once they've once they've read a little bit of it. But I think that there's lots of important things to say about what we get in from reading Chaucer and from thinking about the past more generally. And I mean, one of the things that people most commonly say, which is perhaps similar to what I said at the beginning of this interview, is that when they first read Chaucer, they are amazed at how relevant it is, you know, that he is talking about things that matter to us today. And, you know, that that is absolutely true. But it's also true that some aspects of what he's writing about are very different. I mean, which is, of course, very well expressed in, in what we were just talking about when we try to think about medieval anti-Semitism, for example. But I think that when we're reading texts from the past or about the past, thinking about what has stayed the same and what, and what is different, both those things really matter. If I can talk a little bit about one of my favourite anecdotes from Chaucer's life, which I talk about in this, the second chapter of the book. Um, so the very first life record that we have for Chaucer, the first you know, document that mentions Geoffrey Chaucer, it's not about him as the father of English literature. And indeed, none of the documents from his life are about his writing. Um, it's not about him as a customs officer or an MP or a prisoner or anything like that. It's about his employer buying him some clothes. Right. So it's it's about the fact that as a page boy, a teenager, his female employer bought him a poltock and some hose kind of leggings and, and, and fashionable shoes. And so that seems like quite a dry kind of document. But then when I went and looked into this and tried to find out about these these items of clothing, I found out they were actually completely scandalous that in particular, this poltock was a very short tunic. It was tight. 
it was these clothes were supposed to emphasize young men's buttocks and genitals in ways that contemporary commentators thought was quite indecent and I read chroniclers from the time so churchmen kind of middle-aged older you know you know serious authoritative men who were writing in chronicles that it was outrageous that young men were dressing like this that they looked appalling they were showing off their and their genitals and one even said look this is bringing the plague back to England because God is so angry with us because our young people are dressing so inappropriately this actually brought the plague back so this is obviously quite a funny anecdote and again you know it kind of counters the whole father of English literature serious Chaucer thing when you think of teenage Chaucer in his fashionable clothes kind of prancing about um but I think there's also a really serious point to this anecdote because on the one hand, when we think about this anecdote and we think about this as, as something in the past, we think nothing has changed. You then as now, old people, middle aged people said, oh, the youth of today, look at them in their short skirts and their tight jeans dressing so inappropriately how can you go out dressed like that this happens in every generation and again today we see people saying oh covid is spreading because young people are having parties and they're not doing social distancing properly this was even worse it was the black death <laughs> that god was sending because of people wearing these clothes on the other hand it's not a familiar anecdote because chaucer was not exercising personal choice he was not a teenager expressing his own identity by choosing what clothes to wear and rebelling against his parents his employer was telling him he had to wear these clothes he had this job in which he was not paid in money he was paid in clothes and food he did not have any privacy he didn't have a room of his own he had to sleep in common with other people he had to eat when he was told to he had a life that was dictated by the whims of his employer and he lived his life in public whereas for us you know privacy is so important it simply wasn't important for him at that time and it wasn't an option for him so to try to understand his life at this time we can't just think oh we get it it's accessible we also have to make this huge leap of our imagination to try to think about what is it like when you can't close the door and be on your own ever when you can't you know, when you can't choose what you wear where you sleep what you eat any of those things what is it like to be a person in this much more public way so I've talked about that for, for a few minutes because I think this is why we have to read texts from the past both because it reminds us of a kind of common humanity and because it reminds us that things do change and that it's incumbent on us to try to understand change, to make leaps of the imagination, to try to understand other people who live in other cultures, in other places, in other times, to try to step into their shoes and see things from different perspectives. And that is also something that Chaucer, who himself saw early examples of artistic perspective on his travels, he was so interested in this idea of perspective, that as you move through different places, you see things from different points of view. And that is something that not only that he teaches us, but that we can ourselves experience by reading his texts and trying to understand a different mindset. And if that is a bit hard, that's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing sometimes to challenge ourselves and not just read what's easy or what comes what comes to us um, in a very straightforward way. You know, it's good to challenge ourselves to make those leaps.
Hey, this has been absolutely fascinating, and I wanted to um, thank Professor Turner for her time, for taking the time. And, and again, it's Chaucer, European Life, uh, Princeton University Press. Just go on to Amazon and purchase it. And it really is, uh, you know, a, a richly researched, nuanced. You really get a sense of, of the person and the time. And thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure.